Hello and welcome to Crossing Channels. I'm Rory Kathleen Jones. Can economic growth and sustainability coexist? That's the subject of the latest in our podcast collaboration between Cambridge University's Bennett Institute for Public Policy and the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse. As ever, we're going to use the interdisciplinary strengths of both institutions to explore a complex challenge. Is there an inherent trade-off between economic growth and environmental protection? What kind of policies might address both economic and environmental goals? And what are the challenges in adopting these policies? In other words, can growth be green? To explore these issues today, we have Matthew Agawala and Alessio Terzi from the Bennett Institute. Matthew, start us off. Uh, remind us what your research focuses on. I'm Matthew Agarwala at the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. I focus my research on green finance, productivity, sustainable development and human well-being. Great to have you on the podcast again. A big welcome to Alessio Terzi, the newest member of the Bennett Institute. Uh, Alessio, could you share with us your primary research interests? Thank you. Yes. So my primary research is on long-term growth and uh, how that relates to climate change and climate action. Excellent. And joining us from the Toulouse School of Economics, we have Stefan Lamp. Stefan, remind us of your main research interests. Thank you. Yeah, I'm an economist. I work mostly on energy and environmental economics. And my recent work has focused on climate change policies more broadly, how they impact individuals and firms, also impact of climate change policies on, on firm productivity or adoption of, of green technologies more broadly. So many of the forces that built the modern capitalist economy involved increasing global gas emissions and depleting natural resources. To protect the environment is the answer to abandon economic growth, or can growth and environmental protection coexist? Alessio, in your book Growth for Good, you've written about this very topic, so why don't you start us off? Yes, indeed. It started uh, during the pandemic, as a matter of fact. And this was a time when uh, economic activity was plummeting, given there was a virus, there were lockdown uh, measures all across. And the only good uh, news was that environmental indicators were improving. Quality of water improved, quality of air improved, the CO2 emissions went down. And so that was the beginning of a reflection on, uh, given we have to improve on environmental indicators, uh, even once the pandemic is long gone, do we have to shrink the economy uh, in order to uh, fight the climate fight. Uh, this led me into a journey. It required understanding what economic growth is. And the conclusion I reach in, in the book, going through uh, various uh, periods in, in history um, and various geographies and, and how growth has happened, is to say, look, we live currently in a fossil fuel civilization. It is true that right now, almost all of economic activity most of economic activity implies destruction of the environment or a heavy toll on the environment and CO2 emissions, but this doesn't have to be this way, and that a different type of growth model is possible, but of course it requires a lot of things. Was it a sobering moment or an enlightening moment perhaps when some months into the pandemic you saw, yeah, obviously output is falling, but hey, no planes in the sky, the birds are singing, etc., etc. I mean... Were you intellectually curious immediately about whether 
actually the, the lobby that's been around for a long time already that says basically growth is bad and we ought to freeze it. Did you have some suspicion for a while that they might be right? I have to say I did. And that is why my book doesn't start as a defense of economic growth. It starts as a reflection on the relationship between growth and nature. I didn't start wanting to argue in one direction or another, which is why I look at all of the perspectives and try to look at all the possible reflections on what growth is, how does it relate to the environment, is it inevitably destructive or not. Matthew, have you been on a, a similar journey in, in wondering for a while whether growth was really not the answer anymore? I think I haven't actually been on, on, on that full journey. I am still pretty devoutly in favor of growth. And here's one of the reasons why. My father was born in India in 1954. And his father was born even before and, and, and not a particularly wealthy person, uh, was orphaned, managed to get through school, managed to get an education and, and enter into the foreign service. Where he started in life, my grandfather and my grandmother, to where I am in life, is a remarkable story of economic growth. And it's transnational, and it's across different income levels. And I think that what is really important, especially for the audience we might seek to, to connect with through, through this podcast, is that there are differences within countries and between countries, where they are on the growth journey and what levels they ought to achieve. And so I think that for at least half the world's population, Physical, material growth in consumption has to be a priority. And I think I have a, a moral objection to those who would disagree with me. But what then makes you feel that sustainability is compatible with growth? It's obvious from your argument that, yeah, growth delivers improved living standards, certainly in the short term, to a large number of people. And, and particularly in less developed countries, it's, it's more urgent. But... What makes you convinced that there is a path where uh, it's it's sustainable? The current path we're on is unambiguously not sustainable. We've seen a million species pushed to the brink of extinction in the past century or so. We've seen a 70% decline in the wildlife populations of tracked species just since 1970. 70% since 1970. This is clearly unsustainable. And so the growth path has to change. But I think that that is possible if we do two or three things. First, we have to start measuring growth appropriately. And this means that when we are paying lots of money to clean up after an oil spill, when we're valuing oil companies at very high valuations and the subsoil assets of natural gas and coal and oil, when we pretend those are very valuable assets because we ignore the value of the climate damages they will impose if they are exploited, then we are completely mismeasuring growth. And so what we need to do is think of a growth pattern that accounts for both the benefits but also the costs. And I think that's something that the work at the Bennett Institute and, and other places around the world uh, is, is moving us towards. We've seen the United Nations develop natural capital accounting standards that were adopted by the UN General Assembly in 2021, which is a remarkable achievement. And now we're seeing those methods of measuring the economy roll out to countries all around the world. 
Stefan, your work focuses on the, the move to sustainable energy, which is obviously going to be hugely important if we are to have green growth. But before we look at that in detail, do you believe that we can have it all, decent growth, and sustainability. Yeah, I kind of agree with the view of, of Matthew. And in fact, um, for me, the two things like growth and sustainability are necessarily opposing views, but they might actually go together, especially in a sector within the energy transition. We can see that, right? There's there's more and more investment into like green and uh, sustainable forms of, of technology. If we look at sustainable energy, there was a view uh, amongst, I suppose, skeptics 20 years ago that... Uh, that was where you saw the impossibility of, of, of green growth, that uh, we'd be abandoning efficient, cheap forms of energy for very expensive, inefficient forms like wind. Would your argument be that that's been disproved over the last two decades, that we are now seeing clear examples of the move to green energy being sustainable and being the engine really that delivers this sustainable growth? Yes, I, I very much agree with you on that. So if we just look at, at cost factors um, for technologies such as solar or wind, I mean, these have, have come down by substantial amounts just in between 2019 and 2020, around like 80% cost decrease in, in solar power. And this had also led to a large increase in, in its deployment. And overall, if you if you compare just the pure cost, like the, the levelized cost of, of these technologies in investing into them, they're typically cost competitive to other forms of electricity generation uh, from fossil fuels. The take up of those technologies has been really driven by, by, by cost declines. But is there still not the, the need, the drive in, in a, a lot of countries to, to rely still on what seem uh, on the face of it to them available, easy and sometimes cheaper forms of energy that may be polluting? At the current level, um, as you say, it's, it's probably still very hard to rely on a 100% renewable ele electricity grid. But I think the path is, is clearly set for, for this type of scenario. If, if you look, for example, to, to the goals within the European Union, uh, what they want to reach towards 2030 and also towards um, 2050. So um, these large investments in, in renewable need to be accompanied by, by other forms of technologies. For example, we need investment also in infrastructure grid, but also we will need investment in and type of storage technologies that will allow us, you know, to deal with these intermittency issues these technologies might have. Alessio, talking of what's happening in Europe in particular, you've got extensive experience, I know, working at the EU level. What are concrete examples of EU policy strategies trying to achieve this goal of economic growth, but clean growth? The flagship project of the European Commission in this respect has been the European Green Deal. When it was announced in 2019, you have the president, Ursula von der Leyen, going in front of the press and saying this is our new growth model. So really setting it clear that it is a green growth model that Europe has chosen. And I think the, the other aspect that is fundamental of this, of this flagship project is to realize that everything is a bit interconnected. So here we're talking a lot about climate change, but also uh, Matthew was mentioning other dimensions of the environment of biodiversity loss. And, and what the Green Deal tries to do is, is to uh, make this uh, connection. When I joined the European Commission, back then it was before the Green Deal, before 2019, I joined the economics department. At the time, climate was seen, okay, as something important, climate action, but for somebody else, it wasn't the concern or the priority of economists. It was for people in the environment, uh, 
department or in the climate department. And instead, what the European Green Deal did is to say, look, it's everybody's duty to think of what they are doing, what is their priority, and think of how this can contribute to this uh, climate and environmental challenge. Of course, it has important targets that uh, uh, Stefan was mentioning. You start with uh, a roadmap towards some uh, uh, understandable targets. You put this into law, so you make it uh, binding, and then you break down the problem, because if not, the problem looks uh, as uh, unmanageable. And so you break it down at sectorial level, and you start having targets at sectorial level, with, be it agriculture, be it transport, be it housing, and so on. And, uh, and you see how you can attack the problem and reach uh, climate neutrality uh, by 2050 or reduce uh, environmental and biodiversity loss. But there, there are fashions here, aren't there? Uh, we've, we've had Green New Deals in various countries. Uh, we've got one under the Biden administration, a huge programme. Here in the UK, uh, the opposition Labour Party talking of spending, although being ever more cautious, uh, large amounts on a Green New Deal. But... At certain times, they become very un- unfashionable when economic times get harder. Do you think that there's the political will to carry them through? First, they wouldn't call them fashions, but rather a realization that we don't have the silver bullet and that it's not obvious how we're going to reach this uh, very arduous task. And so, you know, economists liked to think that the secret was carbon pricing, for example, that this was the optimal solution. And they have been saying this uh, since before the Kyoto Protocol. And yet uh, it doesn't look like this uh, alone is sufficient. The very high-level committee that was tasked uh, to determine uh, uh, optimal carbon pricing, uh, so Stern and Stiglitz committee, concluded carbon pricing is not sufficient. We need other things. We might need industrial policy. We need investment in research. We need uh, uh, regulation on a variety of, uh, of things. So... I think that the fact that we see a plethora of different policy mixes is a reflection of of this. And to your concern, and I think it's an appropriate concern, especially in this uh, mega election year in in several uh, jurisdictions in the US uh, at the European Union level, in half a, half a dozen country, countries in the European Union. Including the UK. <laughs> and outside of the European Union as well, including the UK. I think that green, uh, the green transition is going to be a very important uh, element under different framework and narratives. It is uh, challenging. And the different policies that you've mentioned, whether it is Inflation Reduction Act or carbon pricing or the UK approach and others, have different repercussions in the short term, have different repercussions on different groups, on different regions, of different professions, or different areas. And so we are at risk of seeing that reflected in election outcomes. Matthew, I can see you want to come in. Yeah, I just, um, there's a lot of excitement around the Green New Deal and the Inflation Reduction Act and the potential for labor to commit what I would not describe as very large sums of money, a bit less than 1% of GDP is the number that seems to be bandied around in, in, in the press. But these policies of trying to stimulate investment into the green economy, the low carbon climate resilient economy are very welcome. I think it's important to consider the other side of the equation as well. So at COP28, the UK committed to contributing 60 million pounds to the loss and damage fund, basically so that poor countries can have access to some funds to help clean up after climate disasters. 60 million was the commitment. 
Now, in the same year, the observed, not pledged, committed, but the actual observed allocation of subsidies to fossil fuel industries in the UK was 13,000 million, right? So for scale here, if, if I go to the gym and burn 500 calories, I feel quite good about myself. If on the way home, I stop at a drive-through <laughs> and consume over 108,000 calories, the 500 that I burned at the gym doesn't make much difference. So the climate policies, yeah, look, we, we have to have these big symbolic investments that actually crowd in private sector investment in things like the Green New Deal and the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, but we also have to just slow down and eventually stop doing all the bad stuff that's so destructive in the first place. And it tends to be ignored when we talk about big new pledges. Stefan, I could see you keen to come in there. Yeah, I just wanted quickly to follow up regarding also this political uncertainty and, and the, 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 the current situation there. So in this last election cycle that we had in the European Union, like in, in 2019, when this whole Green Deal was decided, I mean, there was a real let's say, push from the public also towards um, having kind of a climate election, right? So climate change was really in the forefront of, of, of most people. And with the recent crisis, this might have changed. I think this election year might bring us, you know, a very different result. And so actually, uh, some of the things we've been pushing for very hard um, to, to, to reach here might be going down um, the priority list. So um, there's this risk of, you know, for the next political cycle, which is actually very important within the next five years or so, um, where we would like to see real progress in terms of um, um, climate change um, um, targets to being reached, um, that, that this might not reach the, the, the political support uh, that was there before. Isn't there a problem, and this is really for all of you, that there's been a kind of lack of honesty amongst those pushing these policies, that they're, they're not without pain. We've all started off by saying we, we believe that green growth is, is feasible, but um, we're not saying getting there may involve some people losing out and some pain. Alessia? No, absolutely. I mean, the way I look at uh, what the green transition uh, will resemble is something on par with an industrial revolution. And so when you look at it that way, yes, maybe in the long term, the gains might be huge, especially if you are successful at it and mastering the technologies of the future green economy. But that shouldn't uh, hide the fact that the structural transformation is humongous. Uh, what we're trying to do is to reinvent the whole of production and consumption, the whole transport, housing, clothing, uh, agriculture, and more. And that means that you need a change of capital and of labor, meaning uh, skills and education. That is hard. Uh, so for many people, they've been doing their, their job their whole life. To think that they will have to stop doing it the way they do or the way they've trained to do it is uh, is not going to be an, uh, an easy task. I still think it is a manageable task and it is what I try to show in some of my, of my research in terms of the retraining that is needed. It will be hard also because some regions will be affected more than others. And so uh, on, in those regions we cannot, uh, you know, shy away from realizing that, uh, that it will be... It will be it will be hard uh, for them, and therefore they need help and they need funds in retraining and reinventing. Let's say how those communities and those areas can connect to a new green uh, economy model. Matthew, isn't the point there, there that both within countries and 
globally that there, there will be winners and losers and there is a fear that the poor particularly global poor will yet again lose out there will be winners and losers in the transition but failing to deliver the transition delivers an outcome in which there are only losers the status quo is not a viable option the planet on which we live is not putting that on the table we cannot compare the costs of the net zero transition against life today because life today will not continue as it does today uh, what we will find is a an increase in extreme weather events We'll find a decrease in labor productivity, a decrease in agricultural productivity. We would see an increase potentially in violence, possibly even armed conflict within and between countries. Entire regions of the planet becoming essentially unlivable. And so there would be mass migration from this. The, the downside of not doing the transition is absolutely catastrophic. And that's what we're trying to avoid. And there will be some winners and there will be some losers. Good policy design can help ameliorate that to some degree. We've seen when carbon taxes are badly designed and they hit the poor the worst, you get riots like the Gilets Jaunes uh, in France. Instead, when carbon taxes are designed very well, as they did in Western Canada, the general public received a check from the government before the tax was imposed. So the tax was designed to be revenue neutral so that all the money that was gonna come in from the tax was gonna be handed back to the public. It was only going to be imposed on carbon so that it would change the incentives, but the government wouldn't generate any new revenue out of it, which meant that when all of that money went back to the public, the citizens in Western Canada experienced a new tax that started with them receiving a check from the government. Now, I've been taxed in lots of different countries my entire life, and I've never experienced a tax that started with me getting a check. Right? Uh, this increased political acceptability. That tax is still in order uh, in, in uh, Alberta, and it is still being used, and, and it's uh, helping to uh, realign the incentives to help shift people away from fossil fuel cars, uh, which in Canada are quite prevalent, uh, especially the large SUVs, towards uh, smaller and EV cars. Stefan, what can you tell us about good policy design in, in, in the area in which you focus on, on, on sustainable fuels, renewables, and so on. Sometimes they cause great resentment amongst uh, consumers if they think, particularly during periods which we just had of high energy prices, and sometimes they give people a warm glow. What have you observed? In the area of uh, especially renewable energy investments, so there have been a, a huge variety of policies in place. So each country has, has their own type of schemes and, and different forms of, of implementing those. Most that have been focusing towards stimulating um, demand uptake have been received very well by the public overall. However, they've been also proven to be costly policies. I'm just thinking of, of some certain schemes like, like feed-in tariff schemes that, that have been in place in Europe for solar panel investment, where the producer of or like the owner of, of a solar panel could sell his generated electricity to the grid and receives then a price which is above the, the wholesale price of electricity. And here again, as uh, this links like to the point you made before, so so the politicians have have 
implemented these type of policies, they, they were claiming that, that this is a very low-cost policy. You know, there would be not not additional burden being taxed on other people, but it turned out over the years has been as there's been more and more deployment of these technologies that actually the cost has been quite substantial. And this has been regressive because we see uh, richer households being able more to invest in, in these type of technologies and the overall public then um, needs to pay, for example, an additional amount on the electricity bill just to finance the few who are actually able to install, especially on the onset of, of this energy transition. So uh, the, the the Matthew example of, uh, from Canada, that is pretty rare. It's not easy to find opportunities to do that. The, the, there is going to be pain and it's very difficult to mask. I pretty much agree with that, exactly. So I mean, there's there's, there's few, uh, few examples where I think that the public just unilaterally accepts these type of, of policies. But um, towards the point that we were also made before, I think a carbon tax is is, is considered to be a central part of, of any type of um, serious um, you know, climate change policy um, because we need to internalize just this externality, which is, which is generated given that there's no price on carbon. So so firms and households and and, and, and other um, agents within the economy need, need to see that, that price in order to make their, their correct decisions. Um, then the, the second point is exactly if we, you know, there's some type of um, redistribution scheme um, that allows also for, for just transition, which will be proven uh, very important, especially to, to reach a political consensus of broad, broad groups. Uh, Alessio, when you look ac- across... Uh, particularly the European Union, uh, what what barriers do you see to ad- adoption of these policies? Is is the road becoming particularly rough at the moment? One of the problems of the approach we followed in Europe is that we have been using a lot of uh, sticks. Let's say we were talking of carrots and sticks as a, as a combina- potential combination, subsidies and regulation or taxation. Uh, Europe has been doing a lot of the taxation regulation part with carbon pricing or with uh, with rules, uh, in part also because of institutional reasons. So the European Union doesn't have a very large budget. It cannot raise funds, so it cannot do what the Biden administration has been doing with uh, huge subsidies and giving out checks to roll out green technologies. So it did what it what it could do as a regulatory superpower. But I think that politically this is very challenging and uh, and it means that you have less funds to accompany uh, the transition and it means that the, the ride is bumpier in between uh, uh, the current economy and the future economy. And right now we're having an election and we are in the middle of the river and the middle of the river is not a place that is uh, nice to be in. And and this is uh, what I suspect we're going to see, uh, see a lot of. Matthew, you mentioned earlier... GDP uh, as a, uh, a a measure being not very satisfactory at the moment is reforming that um, absolutely vital to this whole project. And how much chance is there of doing that? Because economists have been talking about it for quite a while. I don't see any enthusiasm by the politicians to throw that out and find a, a, a new method, especially one that may go down because they want a number that goes up, don't they? Yes, they do. I mean, it, it, it's a great question. It's something that we focus on a lot here at, at the Bennett Institute. Um, how do you measure the economy? How do you know if there's been some progress in the economy? In the theme of uh, Professor Dame Diane Coyle's book on GDP, A Brief But Affectionate History, I'll give a slight defense, which is that... That's, that's a good book. That's a good book. 
it, it it's a brilliant book. I, I hear you know the author. Um, so, uh, look, GDP growth over the past century or so uh, has come alongside increases in life expectancy, access to education, access to nutrition, the enfranchisement of minorities into the voting system, um, empowerment of women and girls. Uh, and these uh, improvements in the human condition have been found in all parts of the world. Unequally, absolutely, but improvements in all parts of the world. And so GDP growth has been very, very good for an awful lot of people. Uh, the problem is it has also come alongside one and a half trillion tons of CO2 being released into the atmosphere. And as we were speaking about earlier, catastrophic impacts on biodiversity on land and in the oceans. And so it's unsustainable. And so we need a new economic model. And I think we need a new measure, a new definition of success. And I think the, the way that I like to describe this new model and, and this new measure of success is to imagine that we're running a bakery. The size of the pie that we can produce in the future depends on the stock of ingredients in the pantry. And if you run out of ingredients, then tomorrow's pie is smaller. Well, it turns out that the economy operates in exactly the same way, except that the core ingredients of economic prosperity aren't flour and sugar and milk. Uh, they're capital assets. They're things like natural capital, a safe, clean environment, a stable climate system, clean air, healthy ecosystems. Human capital, the health and skills of the population social capital, the ability of communities to overcome collective action problems, the amount of trust that we have in each other, in businesses and in government, physical capital, of course, the, the roads, the windmills, the solar farms, the buildings that we have, the physical infrastructure, knowledge capital, the skills and accumulated best practices and ways of doing things. Combined, these capitals make up our economic pantry and they determine how much pie we can have in the future. Well, if GDP is the measure of the pie that we've all been using, the way that we have grown GDP over the past 70 years has simply been by raiding the pantry. And that's unsustainable. In particular, we've been raiding our natural capital. And so if we had a new measure and a new economic model that focused not just on GDP, the size of the pie, but also on our economic pantry, on our inclusive wealth, on our stock of natural, human, social, physical, and knowledge capitals. And we targeted policies that would grow the economic pantry. Then I think we would start to see the goals of growth and environmental and social sustainability come into coordination and alignment with one another. Right. I'm going to end by uh, kind of almost pursuing what you're, you're talking there and coming to each of you uh, about how optimistic stroke pessimistic you are that this sustainable green economy can be built over the, the next decade. Stefan, I suppose you've, you've had the, the optimistic story in, in where you focus because, as I was saying at the beginning, 20 years ago, few would have predicted the, the successful advance of renewables that we've seen. Are you optimistic that that can continue and that that can really be the engine for this sustainable economy? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, so overall, I'm I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, we've seen this progress and this type of technologies over the last 20 years to the cost decline, but also due to policy um, that has been in place here. But as we also discussed, you know, um, due to several political uncertainties, overall, like implementation um, and coordination for these technologies has has been lacking behind. It has been quite a slow progress overall. And um, especially looking forward, so the next five to 10 years will be will be potentially crucial um, in order to reach you know, the self-proclaimed goals in 2050 into being um, to reach net zero uh, in terms of carbon emission. And also to leave some margin for future generations, right? How to how to deal with with these issues? So I think we're on a good road, um, but more effort needs to be made here. Alessio, how confident are you that this period of uncertainty that's sort of come upon us in just the last couple of years about the direction of, of travel of, of these policies, the clouds will clear and we will forge ahead towards a successful green economy that delivers for everybody. On that specific aspect, I am uh, certain, I would say, which is going to strike as a strange tone on on this uh, element. But in a way, it's almost building on what Matthew was saying. If we agree uh, that the current model is unsustainable, then by definition, it means it cannot be sustained and so that it will have to be changed. I think that the, the big question is, when do we manage to do that? If we manage sooner, then we will see less of the impacts that uh, that Matthew was talking about. If we manage too late later, uh, then we're gonna be prodded by natural forces uh, unleashing upon us as humanity in the form of extreme weather events, of wildfire, of droughts and floods, and so on. And so I think that the time dimension is is the crucial aspect which is why, incidentally, we have regulation. So regulation is there to try and make us do this industrial revolution against a timeline, which is given by climate scientists or informed by climate scientists. And so I think that some countries, linking back to the winners and losers discussion we were having earlier, some countries will manage to implement good policies. In the process, they will pave the way for uh, even more uh, government action. And and so they will be the ones that emerge as winners. Others will be laggards. Matthew, are you an optimist or a pessimist and why? What are the key decisions that we as humanity are going to make over the next few decades that that will determine that? Well, as an economist, I feel entirely entitled to be both optimistic and pessimistic (laughs) simultaneously. I go back and forth, really. There is no question that the future economy will be decarbonized. The only question is whether that will be achieved through design or by disaster. Uh, If we decarbonize by design, it is because we have taken the decisions today to invest in a low carbon climate resilient economy, to accelerate the transition uh, across all countries and to cushion those who would be losers, both in terms of countries that will lose out, but also people within countries uh, who will lose out. That's the design route. The disaster route is that the pace of climate change accelerates and outpaces our ability to innovate and adapt. And as a result, there's a major restriction in economic activity. That's the most painful route. You can look to periods of history where we have seen a shrinking economy. Uh, It happened under Pol Pot. It happened at the end of the Soviet Union. It happened under the Great Depression. Sustained degrowth, shrinking economies. Under none of those examples in history 
can you find one that is particularly sustainability oriented or that innovated the sorts of technologies that are necessary to deliver a sustainable future. So I don't really think that degrowth and deliberately shrinking the economy is the, the way to do this. Uh, I think that we have to go the design route. Well, we will come back in series 25 of uh, Crossing Channels and see see how it's all worked out. Uh, that's all we've got time for on this episode. Thanks to Matthew Agawala and Alessio Terzi from the Bennett Institute and Stefan Lamp from the Toulouse School of Economics. Let us know what you think of this latest episode of Season 3 of Crossing Channels. You can contact us via Twitter, as I still insist on calling it. The Bennett Institute is at Bennett Inst. The Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse is IAS Toulouse. And I am Ruskin147. If you enjoyed this episode, then do listen to our other Crossing Channels editions, notably our latest on universal basic infrastructure. And please join us next month for the next edition, where we'll be looking at labour market inequalities.